Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we are here to wrap up our three-part series on the Crusades, which has provided for us the opportunity to uncover some of the myths and fallacies as well as get into some of the key subject matter as it uh, concerns history itself. And I am doing this with John O'Hara and uh, George Wing, reputable scholars and teachers. So, John O'Hara, great to have you with me another evening. Thanks again, Joe. Nice to be here. And George, great to have you with me another evening. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Amen. So, guys, we have spoken to some of the fallacies of how we think about the Crusades, um, that the Crusades was not some unprovoked attack on the Muslim world, and it was not uh, the Christians who taught the Muslims to hate but a response to Muslim aggression, uh, to not only stop the massacres, but ultimately return the Holy Land under the patrimony of Christ. And as I just noted, this demands that we be attentive to history, history itself. Good history is always important to apologetics, but when you start talking about history itself and its events, it's quintessential, right? It's quintessential. So we need to know our history. You know, what does the word history mean in the Latin historia? To weave a pattern. I know, John, you and I have talked about this. If we're going to understand the events of today, right, we must uncover what that pattern looks like. Uh, That great Mark Twain moment that, you know, history never repeats itself, but it has a rhyme scheme. And if we are not familiar with this rhyme scheme, then it is going to leave a void in how we talk about whatever we are going to talk about as it relates to history. You know, guys, a few weeks ago, we talked about President Obama not talking so glowingly about the Crusades as it relates to Christians. Uh, we have to be careful in how we understand our history. Now, incidentally, you guys, a word about the word hate you know, it's, it's Christians who taught the Muslims to hate. Well, speaking of President Obama, you know, our commander-in-chief, in speaking to Christianity as an intolerant religion, said Christians have been less than loving. This is what he talked about in a prayer breakfast on Easter Sunday. What he unwittingly did was affirm a deeper truth of Christianity. When in John 15, 18, Christ says, the world will hate you, but when it does, know that it is first hated me. The Greek translation for hate is loving less. And so what does this mean? Well, we must first love Christ, and in doing so, we are always going to love something less. Now, is this what President Obama is talking about? No. (laughs) He puts love within the context of sentimentality, which is nothing more than emotional indulgence. He removes objective truth from the conversation. While in doing so, he's removing Christ, who says, not I am a way, a truth, and a life, but I am the way, the truth, the life. That is put in the imperative, you guys. It is put in the absolute context, which means we must uncover the truth of Jesus Christ and the pattern of 
the history of our faith if we are going to better understand not only who we are and where we are going, but ultimately in the context of the Crusades, the many myths that blur the vision that are endorsed by the media. Well, the three big myths about the Crusades do have their own historical antecedents. And we mentioned that earlier, I think, previous programs. One was with the Reformation with Martin Luther. Um, criticism of the Crusades uh, is a way of um, denigrating the authority of the Pope. And then also the Enlightenment um, during the um, 17th and 18th century, this movement in Europe to uh, put forward reason over faith, and we have Edmund or Edward Gibbon in mm -hmm. England, and we have Voltaire in France, among mm -hmm. others, writing against the crusade. And um, as with Luther, also an attack on the church, in this case an attempt to weaken the church's influence in the universities in Europe. So the three major myths of the crusades, that they were wars of unprovoked aggression, they were motivated by greed, and uh, the modern myth that the jihad movement that we see today in the Middle East is somehow is a reaction to the Crusades. is a totally ridiculous mm -hmm. um, statement. Um, these have historic antecedents in the Reformation and in the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. President Obama is not the only one who criticized Christianity. Certainly after 9-11, President Clinton, he was mm -hmm. no longer president at that time, said, well, this probably is a result of the crusade. Now, he said words to that effect. This is around 2001. Mm -hmm. Nothing could be farther from the truth. No. Uh, no. And as a matter of fact, the crusades mean very little to the Muslims. What meant something to them was possibly European colonialism in the late 19th century, and certainly in the 20th century as a result of World War One and the Sykes-Picot Agreement. That may have been where... Uh, animosity happened, and then certainly uh, with the uh, introduction of Israel in 1945. So uh, the Crusades meant very little, I think, to, to mm -hmm. the Muslims up until recent times, and maybe not even so much then. The first book in Arabic on the Crusades dates from 1899. It was basically a forgotten event. Is Indeed, as uh, John, as you pointed out, uh, also in 1899, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany makes a trip, state visit to Damascus, <laughs> Syria, and <laughs> asks where the tomb of Saladin is, a great hero of, Muslim hero of the <laughs> Second Crusade. They're not sure. <laughs> and um, they couldn't find the tomb. Well, they eventually located the tomb. But the idea that this great figure in the Crusading period, Muslim figure, has a tomb that has been forgotten, I'll give you an idea of where this was in Arab consciousness mm -hmm. uh, in the 19th century. This was long forgotten. Well, remember, Saladin was a Kurd, hubba hubba. Yeah, he was not that well <laughs> yeah, not an Arab. Arab. Yeah. yeah, he was not an Arab. Yeah. And then Kaiser Wilhelm, as we know, George, does give a bronze monument and mm -hmm. sticks it there. And then after World War I comes out <laughs> uh, and Germany loses and Lawrence of Arabia is led there by an Arab gentleman. He takes the bronze plaque out and it's now in the War Memorial in London if you ever want to go and see it. After the First Crusade, which the West won, many of them went home. And about 75% of the people that went didn't make it. They died en route. Uh, they died for various attacks. They died because of exposure. But anyway, after the First Crusade, most went home. And how were you going to protect the areas that you did? It was mainly mm -hmm. a defensive type of military maneuver in which you went behind your walls. There'd be no artillery. That wasn't going to work. And eventually, things got so bad 
that uh, a second crusade had to be called. What They had several um, outposts of Christianity run by Westerners. These were not colonies because there was no country. The countries didn't mm-hmm. exist in those days. Kingdoms mm-hmm. did, yes. but no countries. The people who were in charge, let's say, of the, we'll call it the Kingdom of Jerusalem, while he was a Western, uh, I think it was Godfrey of Baudouin, mm-hmm. who did not call himself the king because Christ was the king. He was like the protector. Anyway, they weren't really colonies, just there were Muslims involved in there. But actually, the Muslims liked the European enclaves better, from what I read, because taxes were lower and there was no attempt to convert them. You could practice a religion freely. Mm-hmm. And so they and, and you could carry on your trade and your profession just fine. Now, <laughs> eventually... Godfrey died, and pretty soon these kingdoms began to be threatened because the Muslims still lived there. Odessa felt, and that was when the Second Crusade was called. As John points out, these were not wars of colonization. That's no. another myth, by the way. It's not enumerated on my little list here, but it is one that comes up in the in 19th and 20th century narratives, especially as historians, once again, tainted by their own contemporary views, begin to take on anti-colonial or anti-imperialist uh, worldviews. That's another myth, that somehow the Crusaders were going there to set up uh, colonies, and that simply wasn't the case. These gentlemen were on pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. After the pilgrimage was complete, their vow was complete, and they did take a vow to officially be on a crusade. They were signed with a cross, um, uh, cruce signate, mm-hmm. and uh, they they stitched a cross onto their garment. Uh, once they had fulfilled that vow, and with the first crusade, that was to uh, make their way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and uh, pay homage to our Lord there. That then they would return home. So this was not that debunks another myth. This was these were not um, wars to plant colonies. And these were firstborn sons, by the way. Their land was in Europe, mm-hmm. and it wasn't in the Middle East. Yeah, the Crusades were a losing financial proposition. Before the Second Crusade got called, the, the Knights Templars got founded. Mm-hmm. And this was a group of armed knights and their infantrymen who did not ride horses but used crossbows. Now, they wanted to make themselves a religious organization, but here they were armed. That's a little bit different from being a, a, you know, a monk. And... They worried about this, and it was the great St. Bernard of Clairvaux that wrote their the rules, uh, the monastic rules, if you want to call it that, for the Knights Templar. And they were dedicated to the cause of protecting uh, Jerusalem and other areas so that pilgrims could come and worship there. That was their cause. And they used lances and swords as part of their, shall we say, vocation. Mm-hmm. And then the Knights Hospitallers got founded. They still exist, by the way. And uh, they, they were there to uh, provide hospitals as well as, uh, we'll call it, inns where uh, pilgrims could rest. So these two uh, establishments well, got formed, both carried arms, and both took part in wars. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were not, there was no attempt to colonize, and the Knights Templar lived a <clears throat> quite regular and religious life, although they were certainly armed, and they did engage the Muslims in combat, and did very well, I might add, both the hospitalers and the and Knights mm-hmm. Templars. Mm-hmm. And it's important to note here, guys, especially when you start talking about the Knights Templar, is that this was an outgrowth of the larger understanding of what the Crusades was about, huh? A sacred duty. An appeal, George, as you noted a few weeks ago, an appeal to Christian charity. Uh, and John, you talk about St. Bernard of Clairvaux, establishing this rule for the Knights Templar, 
uh, part of that rule was this uh, devotion to Our Lady, certainly something that came from the spirituality of St. Bernard of Clairvaux himself. I mean, the Knights Templar saw themselves as uh, Knights of the Holy Queen, rooted in uh, this classic spirituality that had them going deep in their faith, and it was uh, seamless to their activity, seamless to the ways in which um, they were being called to defend uh, the Christian and Catholic faith, um, both in arms but also in, in prayer. It was all a coherent whole. <clears throat> so important any time we talk about the Crusades that we see uh, this seamlessness. One problem that the Western Crusaders had was they came to the East because they were requested to come to the East by Alex Comenius, then the Emperor of Byzantine. That alliance never worked out. The Byzantines really, I don't think they were that interested in getting back the holy sites of Jerusalem. They wanted the land back that they had lost to the Muslims. And so the interests of the West and the interests of Byzantium were different. Mm -hmm. And that struggle went on all the way through. Frequently, the well, on, on occasion, the Byzantines did sign treaties with the Muslims. Mm -hmm. And when the uh, Westerners came to uh, Byzantium, they weren't that welcome. In fact, they were kind of kicked across the Dardanelles so they could uh, you know, fend for themselves and the Muslims were there. Mm -hmm. So that, <clears throat> that did not work out. Now, the Muslims also had issues. They were not united. Saladin came out of Cairo. There was some real infighting going on there. And he was of pretty good birth and he was eventually able to take over that area. The Muslims also had their, shall we say, alliance problems, but certainly the Byz Byzantians and, and the West, they were there for different purposes. And think of Eisenhower in Europe. Remember his mm. book called Crusade for Europe? Mm. He was kind of in charge, and England and America somehow fought together. It's important to see that the crusading movement is a very important part of church history between, depending upon uh, how you look at the Crusades, or what you call a crusade, anywhere between 500 and 700 years. Mm -hmm. um, of the Crusades that uh, took place, there were eight that were incursions into Muslim territory. It is very important to see that these were at their core a spiritual enterprise. And there had been a request, a request made by the Byzantine emperor to um, you know, liberate the Holy Land, to make it safe for pilgrims, uh, re to return the Holy Land to Christian rule and to thereby uh, protect the shrines, important shrines there in Jerusalem, but also in Bethlehem and Nazareth mm -hmm. and other holy sites, that there were certain criteria that had to be met. First off, crusading was never compulsory. It was always a voluntary enterprise, even for the vassals of the great crusaders like Richard the Lionheart. You signed on voluntarily. I believe also that the wives of the crusaders needed yes. to consent to this mm -hmm. because this would mean that their husbands would be away, likely never to return. Mm -hmm. The casualty rates are, were very, very high. Mm -hmm. um, the church had uh, two, you might say, temporal privileges granted to crusaders and a spiritual privilege. The spiritual privilege, of course, an indulgence, a plenary or full indulgence would be granted. Now, the Latin root, there are word plenty, okay, or in the Hail Mary, in the Latin gratia plena, full of grace. So a plenary indulgence is a full indulgence, okay, to remit the temporal punishment or the punishment due for uh, sins that have been confessed, but um, in God's perfect justice still need to 
be cleansed or mm-hmm. undergo punishment. Now, the uh, temporal privileges, the church promised to, to protect the family and the property of the crusader when they were away on crusade. Uh, this is a very important protection. It would incur an excommunication upon anyone who sees the land uh, or property of a crusader. And secondly, a crusader in traveling through various territories was immune from arrest by secular authorities. There were no tolls to be imposed on crusaders okay, to maintain highways and roads. A local ruler would imp- normally impose a toll, like we have tolls here in the United States. Uh, not common here in California, but if you travel back east, make certain you have some change in your glove mm-hmm. compartment. Yes. And um, also, crusaders could demand hospitality from the church. If you stopped, if crusaders stopped at a monastery, uh, that was understood that hospitality was to be provided. He'd have a place to rest and there would be food. Mm-hmm. So um, these were uh, important privileges. And also, a crusade was, this was not undertaken without the approval of a pope. And so these spiritual criteria had to be met. And particularly taking that public vow to accomplish or to visit whatever site needed to be visited that signified the, the successful completion of the crusader's vow. Joe, you opened the program by talking about history and uh, it speaks with a rhyme. Mm-hmm. Well, the history about the Crusades has done a 180-degree turn, I would say, since about 1960. And they have mm-hmm. gone back to the original documents historians have throughout our various universities. And the historians, that is the professional historians, the academic historians, are seeing the Crusades in an entirely different light, which is mm-hmm. very nice and helpful to see. And, and, I, and I applaud that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Crusaders has... As George has mentioned, you said, are you a crusader? They would know what you were talking about. What they were was pilgrims. That's That's what they considered themselves to be. And the fourth crusade was called by a pope, and it was also ended by a pope. Once Mm -hmm. it it did not actually become a crusade, but we would call it a civil war between the Byzantines themselves, Mm -hmm. in which the crusaders took one of the two sides, he said, get out of there. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. he ended that particular. So yes, the popes called the crusades... And in the last case, they ended it. Yeah, John, as you bring in the Fourth Crusade, it's important to note that one of the chief reasons for the faltering of the Fourth Crusade in its diversion to Constantinople was the fact that it ran out of money before it had actually gotten properly started, and so was in turn indebted to the Venetians that it found itself unable to keep control of its own destiny. Uh, Pope Innocent III, who had proposed the crusade, initially had them set out to Egypt, right, to recover the Holy Land there, which brings us back, <laughs> you guys, to uh, this myth that Western Christians went on crusades because their greed led them to plunder Muslims in order to get rich. Uh, this all goes back to Pope Urban II's speech at Claremont in 1095 when he said, "'Make spoil of the enemy's treasures.'" But this was simply no more than an observation on the usual way of financing war in ancient and medieval society. You know, for most participants, crusading was ruinously expensive. As the historians note, few crusaders had sufficient cash both to pay their obligations at home and to support themselves decently on a crusade. So, from the very beginning, financial considerations played a major role in these pilgrimages and the crusade planning, if you will. 
So important to note this as we continue to dispel some of these myths. We don't call it looting. We call it reparations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the term in modern warfare. I mean, that's an issue. Uh, Germany paid reparations after World War I that, by the way, led to World War II. Mm -hmm. Because in order to pay those enormous reparations, they ended up printing money and inflating their currency. And, um, and causing widespread poverty made the Great Depression even worse for the German people. And then, of course, after World War II, they paid reparations. Mm-hmm. And uh, this comes up in the news just the other day regarding uh, Greece and do they need to pay additional reparations. In order to properly do history, one needs to understand as completely, as thoroughly, as objectively as possible the worldview and the, you might say, mental architecture of the people of a particular period. And in this, in case of the First Crusade and the, those early, actually the first four Crusades, you have to under, you know, get into the medieval worldview. And this is a world much, much different from ours in so many ways where life was very precarious and where a supernatural worldview was held by the great majority of people and that involved taking care of your soul in this life and in the next. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the receiving of an indulgence, that was an important incentive. And the living of a Christian life, the fulfillment of religious vows, that's something that's quite different from our modern worldview. Mm-hmm. A living with the end in mind and whatever's at stake was the medieval worldview. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Um, one little aside about the Knights Templars. Remember, they were called the Knights Templars because they had a residence in one of the temples in Jerusalem where Solomon uh, lived. So it was, I think, uh, one of the popes gave them the term Templars. Now, the Templars, in order to finance themselves, <clears throat> had money coming from Europe in various forms. It could have been cash, unusual. It could have been land. It could have been other different types of monetary value. Mm-hmm. And the Knights Templars became ex- excellent bankers. They became the bankers of Europe, not immediately, but over time. And that's what led to their destruction when Philip of France, uh, probably around the Renaissance, mm-hmm. did away with them because they had all the money. The hospitalers, of course, are still around. And so one other little thing, on the Fourth Crusade, the Dodge of Venice, Venice had a lot of money in those mm-hmm. days, and they had a lot to do with the Fourth Crusade, where, I mean, financial. You know, the Dodge was in his late 80s and blind. And when things went poorly in Byzantium, he got off the boat and he said, guys, we're going through those walls. Here's this 80-year-old, 88, I think it was, blind mm-hmm. guy, and they followed him. His model, uh, you know, was kind of the inspiration. He died. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you, you know, John, you mentioned earlier about modern scholarship. Since the 1960s, scholars have been reassessing our historic view of the Crusades and attempting to understand and create for us a better understanding of the medieval mind. And one of those scholars, you have, John, you have two books here. This is great. Jonathan Riley Smith, What Were the Crusades? Uh, This is published by Ignatius Press. Now, Jonathan Riley uh, Smith, this is a kind of big guns guy. He's a emeritus professor of history, ecclesiastical history at the University of Cambridge in England. And um, also there's a little booklet here from Catholic Truth Society, The Crusades, by Jonathan Riley Smith. And so here's one of the modern scholars, probably the leader in the, the modern study of the Crusades, which are beginning to correct and give us a more accurate picture. The mm-hmm. unfortunate thing is the inaccurate 
biased picture is what dominates the media mm -hmm. and dominates mm -hmm. the thinking even mm -hmm. of our political leaders. It dominates such the as movies. Mm -hmm. The movies, yeah. Barack Obama and mm -hmm. uh, Bill Clinton mm -hmm. and um, even to some extent George W. Yeah, yeah. Okay, in yeah. that religion, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. Yeah. No, it's a religion of submission. Yeah. There's the house of Islam or the house of submission yeah. and the house of war. Mm -hmm. We happen to be ensconced in the house of war. But uh, Jonathan Riley Smith, one of the important scholars. Now, just to, to point out some bias here in the modern media, we had, uh, let's see, about 20 years ago, a BBC documentary that was picked up by A&E uh, channel here in the United States. Terry Jones of Monty Python fame. Mm -hmm. It was entitled mm -hmm. The Crusades. <laughs> and of course, uh, he begins the program, I'm paraphrasing here, what is it that <laughs> caused the Crusaders to become monsters? Yeah. All right. Uh, and then there was a ridiculous <laughs> movie made. It came out, I think, about year 2000 by Ridley Scott. Oh, gee. Um, <laughs> and that's Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah. Now, uh, I have been told what you want to get is the extended version of Kingdom of Heaven. And you can skip the movie, but um, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, the recommended feature is um, Steve uh, Weidenkopf and the extended features, because mm. basically he debunks the film. He's yeah. an excellent yeah. historian. Yeah. Yeah. There was also a, do uh, a documentary made by National Geographic on Jerusalem, and it was a terrible propaganda piece. There's a scene there where they're talking about the Crusaders having taken Jerusalem, and there are hands, a priest's hands, I assume, with covered with blood holding up a chalice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these sorts of, this sort of, uh, I might say, like Reformation or so-called Enlightenment view or modern, like, anti-imperialist view of the Crusades does, has done nothing but create a very crude caricature in the popular mind and mm -hmm. in popular media, yeah. what, and what it's are, simply false. One of the rules of war is if you're behind, in a fortified city, if you surrender, there was very little damage done to the city. They'd come in and take over. Mm -hmm. But if you resisted and they came over the walls in which there was lots of casualties there, mm -hmm. and then they took the city, I mean, it was mm -hmm. Johnny Barther. I mean, you, you were going to die. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and, you know, this isn't a medieval... And they knew that, yeah. It, this isn't a medieval thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Tokyo didn't surrender. Tokyo ended up getting firebombed. Mm -hmm. Okay, and Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the atomic bomb. So it's not. This isn't a medieval thing. In modern warfare, destruction on a scale far greater than in medieval times exists, and mm -hmm. yet we accept this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's important as we're talking about this, guys, and, and we're noting these, these historians. One of the problems we have today is that everything is made out to be arbitrary. Everything is made out to be uh, in the realm of what is subjective. Uh, where that is uh, folly thinking is ultimately uh, we can discover truth uh, because we've been given this capacity to reason, and the instrument to reason is logic. And so, what we have been uh, here about on this radio program, guys, is entering into a, a dialogic, if you will, a dialogue uh, of these matters so that we might better come to understand the truths in history. And, and I cannot encourage all of our listeners enough to go back into the history 
and to use what God has given you, the instrument to reason, so as to better understand these events, and in doing so, put it in the context of faith and, and appreciate within the history itself how history itself is speaking to us. You know, it is so important that as Christians, we embrace the nobility of taking up arms to defend mm. the defenseless Amen. and to restore justice. Amen. This is foundational to why the yes. Crusades were yep. just. Bottom line. Yes. Yeah, bottom line. Well, guys, it has been a great joy having the two of you here in studio to reflect upon the Crusades. I do appreciate the gift of your time. It is uh, very much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, Thank so. you, Joe. Let us go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.